glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. Romans chapter 1, beginning verse 14. Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So, as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without Excuse. We'll stop reading there. It's difficult in Romans 1, as it is in many of the Apostle Paul's writings, to know where to stop because he's going to add a little more, gives you a little more understanding. But we're going to stop in verse 20. I encourage you to read all of Romans chapter 1 and then go over and read 2 Timothy chapter 3 and you have a good commentary on the world that we're living in. Uh, 2 Timothy 3 is, speaks of perilous times. Romans 1 talks about a culture that God has given over unto vile affections and all these kinds of things. But nonetheless, in the midst of that, Paul says, in the, the well-known verses, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, uh, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I came to this message today doing a study on the, the, the phrase, the power of God. Now, it's used... Many times throughout Scripture, you'll be thankful today that we didn't try to give you an entire message on that phrase because it's used numerous times, especially in the New Testament. What might surprise us, though, is what is connected with the power of God. You think of the power of God, I think of an earthquake or I think of a volcano. And certainly those demonstrate God's creative power. Uh, we think of, of um, the power of God being demonstrated by the, the, the top of Mount Sinai and certainly is. But the Bible says Jesus Christ is the power of God. The Bible says the gospel is the power of God. The preaching of the cross is unto us which are saved. It is the power of God. And so my my point is each and every time, almost each and every time, we find the power of God mentioned, it is connected to the word of God. Everything that God does, he does by his word. He spoke the world into existence. He spoke our, our plan of salvation and redemption into existence. Jesus Christ being the living word is the expression of, of God, of the heart and mind of God. And I just I say all that to say here we come to the gospel of Christ being the power of God unto salvation. You don't want to miss that because salvation is something every person needs. I've said this and I'll say it again. One of the most difficult things to do is to convince people that they need salvation. Now, I believe one of the reasons it's difficult to do that in our culture is because we have things so well off in a material sense. In the United States of America, we have th- we're well off material- materially speaking, and it's often hard to convince people, unless they're sick and dying, or unless they are in desperate financial straits, or unless some tragedy is in their life, they can't sense their need for salvation. And sadly, even then, 
they don't want salvation from what they really need saved from. They want salvation from the momentary circumstance. We need salvation from sin. That is, we say, boy, our world is a mess today. It doesn't matter who I talk to. If they're an adult, it won't take long to get into a conversation about current events. You don't have to try. You go down and talk to your mechanic or you go over to the store and talk to somebody in the line at the grocery store, and especially in this conservative community we live in. Somebody's going to say, boy, our world's a mess, isn't it? And it is. And it's it's more of a mess than I've ever seen it. It's You know it's a mess when you have 89-year-olds saying the world is more of a mess than I've ever seen it. You know we're in a mess. But may I remind us this morning that the same thing that's causing the mess in the world we live in caused a mess 100 years ago and 200 years ago and 300 years ago. I've been listening uh, uh, years ago, way back. This is, this is antiquated stuff. Moody recorded some stories. They called them Stories of Great Christians. You may have heard them. They were done in the 1950s and 60s. And I've been listening to a story about a preacher named Peter Cartwright. You might be familiar with him. He was an old Methodist circuit-riding preacher. You ought to hear the kind of world that boy grew up in. People being slid open and filled with rocks and dumped in the river. Friends, we're talking about the late 1700s, right before the Second Great Awakening. Do you realize how wicked our country was right before the Second Great Awakening? Vile, wicked. You can read about revivals in this country. We kind of get this nostalgic idea that we were a God-fearing country until about 1960. It's not true. I understand in the 1960s we took a hard turn away from God. We've been doing that, nosing our way that way as a nation for a long time. So what point are you trying to make? That mankind has a problem and it's sin. That goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. The first murder occurred within the shortly after Adam sinned in the Garden. His eldest son killed his secondborn. Murder has been around as long as man has been around. Adultery has been around as long as man has been around. Fornication has been around and sodomy and drunkenness has been around ever since fermentation came along after the flood. It's been around and until the Lord Jesus comes and cleans everything up, it will be around. So today, I believe inherently, and I do believe this, mankind knows in his conscience there is something wrong with him. And he knows he needs saved from what's wrong with him. I'll bear that out in the Bible here in just a minute. Let me, let me, let me back up just, just a little bit, and I'll say more about this in a few minutes. How many of you in raising children, you know one of the, the recourses of a wise little child is you say, do you know this got broken? Do you know anything about that? And that wise little child goes, nope. You were in there just a moment ago playing with that, and you know you've been told not to play with it, and now it's broken, and you don't know how it got broken? Nope. We play innocent when we're not. Something I've discovered, you've you got to be careful because your heart can get hard, but you deal with people and they act shocked that they should need a Savior. Why? I mean, yeah, we've all sinned, but I'm not a murderer. Something like that, right? They act shocked, but if they would just be honest for just a moment, they would have to, to tell the truth about what trouble they are in with their Maker. I believe heathens in the darkest part of the world that have not heard a clear presentation of the gospel know in their conscience they are in trouble with their maker. I believe that based on Romans chapter 1. 
And I believe as you and I who are saved this morning take the gospel into the world, it's needful for us to understand that. And I believe Paul articulates that, the Spirit of God, through Paul here in this text. But I just want to point out three things this morning surrounding his statement that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. I want to bring Paul into focus, but for our admonition, for us who are saved here today, I believe there's some instruction that should embolden us in our witness. I believe that's number one. If you're here this morning and you're saved, and as I know a number of you desire for the Lord to make you bolder in your witness for Him, I believe there's some things here we can learn from our dear brother Paul, who's with the Lord today, and the, the usage of the, how the Lord used him to pen these words that will embolden us in our witness and help us to be wise in winning souls. But number two, there's certainly a message here this morning. If you do not have confidence that your soul is saved, that your sins have been wiped clean, that you're forgiven, and that God is now your Father and Savior, then you should get the understanding today from God's Word that God is able to save you. You need to be saved. He is well able to save you. Your power is to put your trust in Him. And so I pray whatever the need is this morning, I believe God through His Word is sufficient to meet that need. So let's get into the outline of the message, verses 14 and 15. and want to speak to you about Paul's comprehension. He puts forward to us some things that he understood that he was very clear in his own conscience, his own mind. Verse 14, Paul says, What I am, I've circled it in my Bible, debtor. I am debtor. Uh, this is a, a text that my dad and I were talking about this text one time. He said, used to, this truth, this principle was preached all the time, that the saved person is in debt to the unsaved world. Amen. We're in debt. The Bible says, owe no man anything but to love. That's the one thing we we'll always owe men, is to love them the way the Lord does. And the idea is, I'm a debtor. Now, may I ask something? If I owe someone and won't pay them, what am I? I'm a thief. Now, Paul said, I am debtor. What did he owe anybody? Well, he'll explain it in both verses. He says, I am debtor both to the uh, barbarians, meaning to the uncivilized heathen, right? I'm, I'm debtor both to the barbarians, uh, uh, the Greeks, excuse me, the civilized world, and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. He says, I am debtor both to the barbarians and to the, the Greeks and the barbarians, to the wise, to the unwise. So to the educated world, to the uneducated world, I owe them something. I owe them something. Verse 15 is going to explain what he owes. He says, so much, so as much as in me is, I am ready to what? Preach the gospel uh, to you that are at Rome also. Uh, Paul understood something, and I believe as a church, I know this. I've heard this preached all my life, and I need the, uh, the reminder of this truth on a regular basis that I have a divinely appointed responsibility. God has entrusted me, and God has entrusted you with the gospel. Now, Paul was entrusted uniquely and specifically as an apostle, but he said, follow me as I follow Christ, meaning God chose me to put in front of you the truth of his word and set an example for you to follow. That includes this concept of the fact that you and I are debtors. We, I'm, I praise God for the members of this church, responsible, hardworking people. I don't sit around and wonder, I wonder if the members of the church pay their bills. We have numbers of people in this church. You, 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 you have a good testimony. You have a good name in the community for being people of your word. That's wonderful. That's good. Can you imagine owing someone a, a debt? Meaning you, you, um, you've racked up a utility bill and it's not that you don't have the money to pay it. You just don't want to. It's not that you're poverty stricken or a tragedy hit or work ran out or something out of your control where you could call them and say, look, things will get better soon. I'm going to pay you whatever I can. I'm talking about you just don't care about paying what you owe. 
We can't imagine that. But do you realize in the spiritual realm, when I do not give the gospel to those who've never been saved, I am holding on to something I'm supposed to give. When Paul says I'm debtor, what he means is it is my responsibility. I've had the gospel of Jesus Christ entrusted to me for the purpose of giving through preaching to other people. That's that's the truth of it. Jesus told the disciples, and it was not exclusively the twelve. You see this carried out in Acts chapter 8, that the, the, the members of the church of Jerusalem, the Bible says, went everywhere, Acts 8, 4, preaching the word. Meaning, it was the average, everyday person went around t- proclaiming who Jesus Christ was, what he had done. So Paul had a comprehension of his own responsibility and his responsibility to preach the gospel. But notice how he frames it. I am debtor. I want to try to explain this to you. This last week, uh, Dawson had a check he wanted cashed. He doesn't have a bank account yet. So he said, Dad, would you go cash my check? I said, I will. I, I will. They, they'll do that at the bank. So he signed it, and I signed underneath it, and they gave me the cash back, and I put that cash in my pocket. Now, as soon as I saw Dawson later in the day, I said, I got your cash. And I was stewarding his cash, right? Had it in my pocket. I did try to fib him, told him I charged a 10% check cashing fee, but he didn't fall for that. Anyway, uh, so I held his cash in my pocket. You know what I was until that cash came out of my pocket and went in his hand? You know what I was? Debtor. Not because he had worked for me, but something had been entrusted to me for the purpose of being given to him. Now, don't miss this this morning. This morning, every Christian, isn't it a wonderful thing to be able to pillow your head with peace in your heart that for Jesus Christ's sake, because He died, because He took the penalty, because He is living, because He represents you, that you are saved, that you don't have to worry about the wrath of God anymore. You've been pardoned. Isn't that a wonderful thing? But may I say this, Christian, part of your armor is gospel. It's the shoes, having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. I watch in my own life, when I start struggling spiritually, there'll be some component of my armor that's either not on or not on properly. And many times the one we miss, we wouldn't dare not think of going through the day without being reminded of the assurance of our salvation, the hope of salvation, and the breastplate of righteousness, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But how often do we neglect our shoes? <laughs> The the preparation, that means readiness of the gospel of peace. We'll get to Paul's readiness in just a moment. But he understood he had a responsibility, and that was God had entrusted him with something not to keep but to give. The gospel, you know what, in our humanistic, self-centered society, we think the primary reason God gave us the gospel is so we could feel better about ourselves. Number one, God saved you and gave you the gospel because he loved you and wanted to keep you out of hell. Number two, after saving you and me, he gave us the gospel because he wants to do that for somebody else. Does God still love the world? The Bible says so. Let me ask you something. Could God have just preached the gospel? Couldn't God write the gospel across the sky that the whole world could see it? Could he, could he not send angels to preach the gospel? How many of us know he did not commission angels to preach the gospel? He commissioned men. You know what the glorious part about that is? You say, why? If he could do it more effectively another way. God's not a pragmatist like we are. He does what's right. And he wants us involved in his work. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we are laborers together with God. And that was in the context of preaching the gospel to people who need to hear it. So this morning, Paul's comprehension, he had a good comprehension of his own personal responsibility. Look, if you would, at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 
1 Corinthians chapter 4. When I say the word stewardship, now be honest with me this morning. When I say the word stewardship, what is the first word that comes to your mind? I saw it, George. Money. Me too. When I hear the word stewardship, if I said next week we're going to have a stewardship conference, what do you think the conference would be about? Come on now, shoot straight. Money! Because that's what we think is the most important thing to steward. May I say we should be good stewards of our money. If we can't be faithful in that which is least, which is money, who will entrust to us the true riches? But we think it's the other way around. If I can't be faithful in that which was least, the gospel, who will entrust me the true riches? Money. Backwards. Money is the least valuable thing we possess. Now, it's a tool, but money is here and gone. How many know riches have wings? They fly away. And we should be faithful in that which is least, unrighteous mammon. So we should be good stewards with money. But that's at the bottom. That's the most, that's the least significant thing. Paul said when he spoke of stewardship, he said he was a steward of the mysteries of God. Meaning truth from God had been entrusted to him and it was his responsibility to communicate that truth through preaching and teaching to other people. And when it comes to a local church, so this church body, we are stewards as a church. We are the pillar and the ground of the truth. How many of you get frustrated today in this era, era where you have fact checkers who can't be trusted to check facts? You might know what I'm talking about? Yeah. In this social media world of fact checker here and fact checker, I, thought, I didn't think those people believed in facts. I thought everything was relative. Didn't you think? Um, these are the same people who say truth is relative, but you're going to check our facts? So doesn't someone actually need to proclaim the truth? Amen. That is us. That is us. And Paul said in his day it was him. So he says, I've got a responsibility. I'm a debtor, meaning I'm not relieved of my responsibility until I have given what was entrusted to me to give to someone else. First Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in a steward's that a man be found faithful. A steward is managing something that belongs to someone else for them. The gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said they were stewards of what? The mysteries of God. Meaning things hidden in time past, but they've now been revealed through the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you realize that the the clarity of the message of salvation was not as clear to the prophet Daniel as it probably is to you and I? Daniel saw the Lord Jesus Christ in 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 a vision of glory, but the fact is the Old Testament prophets looked into what you and I know clearly. They want, the Bible says that. They wanted to know and understand what you and I understand. They had shadows and mysteries of the death and resurrection. They just took God at His word that He would provide a Redeemer. They didn't see that clearly like we do. But you and I have it clearly today, and we've been entrusted with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says it this way in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11. He speaks of the gospel having been committed to his trust. Later, he would tell Timothy the same thing. He says uh, to, that Timothy was to, Oh, Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. First Timothy chapter uh, 1, verse 11. Paul says, According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. I'm trying to establish this. Paul had a comprehension of his responsibility as a steward of the gospel, and he said, it's been given to me to give. You and I, same way. We have been given the gospel not simply and not only so we can have assurance of salvation. 
We have been given the gospel so that we may herald it to someone else. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So Paul's comprehension is seen in his understanding of his responsibility, the, the essence of that responsibility and the extent of it. He said, I am, I am debtor both to the, the Greek and the barbarian. The civilized and uncivilized, the, the, to the, to the, um, uh, to the wise and the unwise. He would later say to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What he's doing is covering all the bases. There's not a person that I have the opportunity to give the gospel to that I'm not supposed to. Now, don't miss me this morning. There are people who say, I would not want to give the gospel to the wrong person. They believe that. I wouldn't want to give the gospel to the wrong person. Paul said, I'm debtor to everybody. Now, I understand we don't have the opportunity to talk to almost 8 billion people today. But you know what? I will have the opportunity to talk to 4, 5, or 6 today. Amen? And I have a responsibility. I'm a debtor both to Jew and Greek, barbarian and uh, uh, Greek and bond. Not It doesn't matter. Male, female. He said every creature. And I believe he said that for this purpose, that we would not think, well, the Lord wants to save that class but not this class. The Lord wants to save them, this color, that gender, this or not. There's nothing less, nothing more anti-discriminatory than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we're all on the same plane, sinners condemned before a holy God, and we all have the same offer of pardon, forgiveness of our sins if we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And so then, Paul says, I'm a debtor. I'm going to ask you this morning, as a Christian, do you see yourself as a debtor? Do I see myself as a debtor? I owe people the opportunity to hear the gospel. And so then he understood his responsibility. And then he speaks in Romans chapter 1, verse 15, of his readiness. He says, verse 15 of Romans 1, So as much as in me is, I am, I've circled it in my Bible, ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome. You know what? Paul says, I know I have an obligation, and I am ready to take advantage of my opportunity. First Peter 3.15 says it this way, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Now, that's key to being ready. Making sure the Lord has preeminence in your heart, that something else is not more important to you than your Savior. Making sure that your heart is the... You know what to sanctify means? To set apart. Your heart and mine is to be set apart for the Lord, not for some other thing. If we're in love with this world, we're not going to witness like we should. You know why? Because we're afraid of what we'll lose. If I witness to this uh, business, uh, this business uh, partner, if I witness to this uh, fellow employee, if I witness to this cousin of mine, well, I will, I, I'll lose, I'm out to lose some money. I'm out to lose some standing in my family. My goodness, I might even get cut out of the will if we speak up for the Lord, right? And look, look this, is, this is where the basics of Christianity, it's what, where we use the term, where the rubber meets the road. When it's time to speak up for our Savior, many times we draw back because of what the implications might be. Can I just be honest with you? Many times, it's not for me. I might lose a job or I might lose this. It's this. That guy might not like me. We like to be liked. You say, I don't. Well, praise God for you. Most people do. We don't want to be thought strange or weird or odd. We want to fit in. We say that about the young people. Friends, you don't grow out of that unless you grow in the Lord. We want people to accept us. We want people to, to receive us and to think highly of us. And if I speak up and tell them what the Bible says, they might take offense to that. But the fact of the matter is we still have a debt to pay. We owe people the truth. That's, it was not given to us just to stuff away is given to given. And so Paul says, I'm ready. First Peter 3.15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready. How often? Always, Always to give an answer to 
Every man. You reckon every means every? Every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. By the way, you know how they're going to know about the hope that's in us? When we tell about it. When we say that I'm, you know what? I hate the mess we're in. But one day I'm out of this place. This is not my forever home. And it's not. You know you're saved this morning. You know that the earth is your pilgrimage. It's a place you're going to be for a while. But heaven and in the presence of God is truly and literally your eternal destination. Friend, that's where our hope is at. A lot of Christians are distressed today because we've gotten our eyes on our place of pilgrimage instead of our home. We're supposed to be looking for the blessed hope. That is not the next election, let me remind you. The blessed hope is not a Republican in a White House. The blessed hope is not a Republican Congress. You say you're getting into politics. I'm telling you, for the Christian, our hope is not in politics. Our hope is in our Savior, regardless of the politics. I don't like the politics. I'll just be frank with you. I don't like it. But I'm not here for that, nor are you. Jesus Christ is no different today than He was a year ago. He's no different than He was two years ago. And so for you and I... We must be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh us a reason of the hope that is in us with meekness and fear. I believe our hope, that means the earnest expectation, the expectation not because not in the way that it's it's a confidence. Our hope is is a confidence that leads to expectation of things to come because our God has promised it. And so it ought to, we, we are looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our Savior. May, may we be reminded Part of how we sanctify the Lord God in our hearts is getting our eyes and our focus on Him. So, number one, Paul's comprehension. He understood his responsibility and therefore he was ready to preach the gospel. I would ask this morning, am I ready? If I encounter someone today who's not heard the gospel or not heard it clearly from the Word of God, now I understand there's people that won't give us the opportunity. That's up to them. But we have to be ready and then do so. Giving the gospel every time We have that opportunity. Number two, Paul's confidence, verses 16 and 17. Paul's confidence. You've seen his comprehension, verses 14 and 15. In 16 and 17, he expresses his confidence. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Now, reckon why he had to say that. But I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also the Greek. How many have ever tried to get involved in sales? Anybody? Maybe you're in sales now. Uh, I've been involved in sales as a job for about 30 days when I was 17, almost 18. I wasn't good at it, right? I'll tell you one of the reasons I wasn't good at it. I did not believe in what I was being told to sell. The longer I worked there, the more I realized I wouldn't buy this. So you're trying to get somebody else to buy something you don't want. And you wouldn't buy if somebody tied your hand behind your back. This is a waste of money. And so you're trying to, it's really deceitful at some level. It's very funny. I remember the day my sister and I, I was, it was telemarketing of all things. Boy, you want to be hated of all men. Be a telemarketer, right? Uh, this is a long time ago. But nonetheless, we both got to talking. We were realizing, we were looking at some of the paperwork. We were not allowed to see the paperwork they actually mailed to the customers after you make a sale. But we got our hands on one somehow. We were telling people they could purchase a discount card. It ends up it's a voucher that was a rebate program. Deceitful. We both agreed that day, we're done. Well... I don't know if the boss heard word of it or what he did, but he came and said, you know, I hate to tell you, but yeah, I'm going to have to let you go. I can't keep you. I hired you. I thought you were 18. You're actually 17. If you want to come back in a few months, you can. I thought, you kept me from having to quit, right? And I left. My sister left with me and never went back. My point is, I was bad at selling that stuff because I have confidence in it. 
Now, I remember as well, I remember sitting through a sales pitch one time, and a guy was, uh, it, was, I was it was a job opportunity. I didn't take the job, but he was selling knives. And I watched him. He took a, an anchor rope for a boat about that thick, and he took that knife, and he sawed through it, and he turned right around, took a, a hair, a, a string of rope, and he cut that thing right in half in midair. After cutting through the rope, I thought, ooh, that's a good knife. You can cut through the rope and still you can shave a hair in half like that. That's pretty good. thought I could sell that product, I think, if it's as good as it looks. Now, I didn't take the job. My point is this. We're not selling the gospel. Don't misunderstand me. But you'll never persuade someone else to take something you don't have. If you've never believed the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will, you can try to be a soul winner, but you can't win people to someone you're not one to. Paul said, the reason I'm ready to preach is I'm not ashamed of what I believe. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Let me just run you through a few things that he had confidence in. Number one, he had confidence in the person of the gospel. He did not say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Paul. It's not our gospel. There are soul winning methods today that teach you to win people to you. You know what? You can have a horrid personality and lead someone to Christ. I'm not encouraging rudeness or sin. I'm talking about you may be an introvert. You may be bad at speaking to people. That's, we're not winning people to us. That's what sales does. We're winning people to Christ. You know what? If you told me, Pastor, win someone to confidence in you. I said, give me about 20 years. I'll try. I'll try. And I'll I may fail you along the way. You may not like what you see. I don't know if I can win you to confidence in me. Now, I understand we need to have good name among one another. I get that. But when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul did not say, I'm not. The good news, he was a testimony to the good news, but the good news was not Paul's intellect. Good news was not Paul's education. He gave all that up for Christ. The good news was not Paul's background. It was not Paul's pedigree. The good news is who Jesus Christ is. There are young people in this room. You know clearly who Jesus Christ is. You know what He did for you on the cross. You know what He's done in forgiving your sins. I guarantee you, you can give the gospel to somebody. Why? Because the gospel is about Him. 1 Corinthians 15 explains it this way, that uh, that He died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He raised from the dead according to the Scriptures. That's the gospel. You realize that's what the Bible defines as the gospel? What Jesus did in living a sinless life, laying it down in our place, dying for our sins, bearing our uh, our sins in his own body on the tree, then he raised from the dead. If he just died, it's not good news. Dead people can't help you. But because he lives, he lives to save. So Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. He was not ashamed of the person of the gospel. He had confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 1.12, he said it this way, Nevertheless, I am not ashamed for i know whom i have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which i have committed unto him against that day somebody help me this morning what's the number one reason we draw back many times that's at least the reason we express from speaking to people about the lord jesus christ what's the first thing we say what's the first word that comes out of our mouth when we say something about why we are drawing back from giving the gospel we'll say i that's the number one problem I'm not a good speaker. I'm not articulate. I don't know the Bible real well. I'm not as intelligent as some people. Do you realize all you have to know is who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for you? Amen? It's the truth of it. It's the truth of it. And I understand there are people that will challenge you. You know what you can say? I don't know about your challenge, but I know whom I have believed. (laughs) 
and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. The reason Paul was unashamed in preaching the gospel is he knew who he had believed in. He knew who Jesus Christ was according to Scripture and he had absolute confidence in Christ to do what he had promised to do. The Lord Jesus Christ has promised to pardon my sins upon my faith in him. And therein is the boldness that is needed when our focus is on him and who he is. He had confidence in the person of the gospel. Therefore, he had confidence in the power of the gospel. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation. God's salvation is so simple. We have that little gospel track, God's simple plan of salvation. You know why it's called that? Because that's true. Salvation is not a complicated process. It is something simple. It's something God does for us upon our faith in Christ. And Paul said, I'm confident that the the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what he did through his death and resurrection is the power of God unto salvation. That's how people get saved. And so then he had confidence in the person of the gospel. He had confidence in the power of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the preaching of the cross is foolishness to them that perish, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. The power of God, listen, is not preaching a better way to live your life. Turning over new leaves and better management of your life won't save you. It may, it may soothe you a little bit, while you're lost, but it won't save you. It's Jesus Christ who saves. He's the Savior. My part is simple. I trust Him to take care of my sin. Isn't that simple? Now the question is, if, if I'm counting on me to make me good enough to get into heaven, you tell me when I'll get assurance of salvation. Never. Unless I'm a good liar to myself. But if I'm trusting Jesus Christ to take care of my sin and get me into heaven, When can I have assurance of my salvation? Right now. Paul said, Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. And so then, Paul had confidence in the person of the gospel, in the power of the gospel. He had confidence in the product of the gospel. It is the power of God unto what? Salvation. Salvation. That leads us to our next point, though. He had confidence in the potential of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, but there's a condition on it to everyone that believeth. I've used this illustration until I've probably overused it. But I would say this, running through these power cords over here is a lot of power, right? Now, there's another power outlet there that has twice as much power. It's hidden away, safe. You can get 120 or uh, you can get 240. You can get how much ever you need. But you know what? That power is no good until it is harnessed and appropriated to something. It's potential power until it is opened up and the circuit is open and it's transferred to something, correct? You know what? The gospel is powerful enough to save anybody, but it doesn't save anyone unless they believe it. By the way, believing it is not saying, well, I'll try it. No, believing it means I accept it as a fact. I believe it in my heart. You understand what imparts salvation to you, everything is in place to save you from your sin, but what imparts that salvation to you is your faith in what God says. John 3.16 is used so much because it's so clear. For God so loved the world. Now let's just slow down for just a minute because there are false teachers today who want to muddy the waters. We don't need, need, you don't need to know the Greek to understand this verse. I don't know the Greek. You don't have to. For God so loved the what? The The world. Now as you hear God so loved the world, who would you think that includes? God used broad terms because he meant to. For God so loved the world 
That means the people that have been before us, the people that will be born after us, the people that are alive now. It means people in India and China and Iraq and Iran. And it means people in Idaho and Montana. And it means people down in Africa, wherever you want to go. It's the world where people are. The sin-cursed world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That, what's the next word? Whosoever, we sang the song this morning, whosoever surely meaneth me. There are Bible, so-called Bible scholars today say, well, whosoever doesn't really mean whosoever. So if you think that applies to you and that you can take that verse as putting your name in there like some people would teach you that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that if Nevin would believe in Him, Nevin should not perish but have everlasting life. I'll tell you on the authority of God's Word, that's exactly what it means. Whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. The only thing that gets between us and salvation is not getting our will in line with His will. God is more willing to save people today than we ever are. He's not willing that any should perish, but that how many should come to repentance? That all should come to repentance. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Paul says, I have confidence that the gospel is the power. God has ordained this message of Jesus Christ, that He died and sufficiently paid for the sins of every man. That's what the Bible says in Hebrews. That He died once and for all. He sufficiently paid my sin debt, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Isn't that good news? Unless we think we're okay. But the fact of the matter is, Paul says, I have confidence in the power of the gospel and the potential of the gospel to save any person who will believe it, to take God at His word. Remember, the just shall live by faith. It's by confidence in His word that we receive righteousness, that we receive salvation. So he had confidence in the person of the gospel, Jesus Christ. Therefore, he had confidence in the power of the gospel because the message is as good as its author. He had confidence in the product of the gospel, salvation. He had confidence in the potential to everyone that believeth. And he has confidence in the purity of the gospel. In verse 17, it says, For therein, talking about in the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. I believe he's talking about Old Testament faith and New Testament faith. He said, you know what? The the gospel reveals the righteousness of God under the old covenant. It reveals the righteousness of God. He is just under the old covenant, and he is the justifier under the new. That he might be both God did not have to compromise his righteous principles to save us. By becoming one of us and living sinlessly according to his own dictates and then laying down his life in our place, God remained just, and he is also the justifier of those who've broken his law by offering us pardon in a righteous way. The gospel is the only message that allows God to maintain his righteousness. Every other way says man can make himself as righteous as God or God has to make himself as sinful as man to save man. God did not either. Man cannot have elevated himself to the righteousness of God and in humbling himself, God did not become sinful. He became our sin. He took our punishment, but he never sinned. And so then Paul said, I have absolute confidence in this message I preach. That's why I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also the Greek. Any Jew or Gentile, it will save you the same. And so Paul's comprehension leads to his confidence. And then thirdly, Paul gives some clarification. Verses 18 through 20. He says, and he's explained all this, uh, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. And therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As, the, as is written, the just shall live by faith. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is... So he's talked about 
the, the fact that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, but he says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Now here's, let me kind of try to bring this home, and I think it's exactly what the Apostle Paul was doing in writing to the Romans. Is there any unrighteousness or ungodliness in our American culture? Oh my. Is there any who don't know that they are being unrighteous? I mean, you know, there's people that they don't know that it's wrong to commit fornication or adultery. Now they might tell you that. They know. You know why we need a Savior and why the gospel is God's message of power unto salvation? Because man knows he's in trouble with his God. So there's some people that don't know that. No, you hear me? Man knows it. I don't care if he's raised in a Bible preaching home or not. He may not know it as clearly as the next guy, but how many of you have a conscience in you? Absolutely. You can watch a child that's never heard one verse of Scripture tell a lie and cover it. They do something wrong, they lie to cover, and then they lie to cover the lie. And Why? Because they know that they've done something wrong. Well, who told them that? What distinguishes us? We're made in the image of God. God put His laws, Romans 2, 15, would say, in our hearts, we know. We know you're not supposed to covet. We know that. And Paul says the reason that the gospel is powerful, man knows. God reveals His righteousness because God's already revealed His wrath. So when you tell someone salvation... If they'll be honest, they know at least at some level what they need to be saved from. So his clarification goes on. He says in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth. I mean, we know the truth. We hold it in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest where? In them. For God hath showed it unto them. Now, when you have somebody telling you, I don't know the difference between right or wrong, are you going to take their word or God's word? God says he's made it known to them. It's in them. Because God hath showed it to them through the conscience, God has, and through creation, he's shown his existence. Through the conscience, he's shown them their guilt before him. Verse 20, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are, what's the next two words? Clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Someone would come along and say, well, good for us to give the gospel to everyone we can, but what about the people that just don't know? I believe the Spirit of God foresaw that and said, they know. They still need to hear the gospel, and that's why they need to hear the gospel, but they need to hear the gospel because they know they're sinful. One of the easiest things to convince somebody is they're a sinner. Would you say you're a sinner? Yes. Well, give me an example. Well, you know, taking something didn't belong to me, whatever it may be. But then you turn around and say, well, because you're a sinner, God's wrath is on you. Oh, now there's something different going on. <laughs> I never killed anybody, you know. No, the, the Bible says the wrath of God is revealed against what? All ungodliness and unrighteousness. Let me ask you a question. Which is more ungodly? Taking a draw of marijuana or being proud that you never have? In God's eyes, which is more ungodly? The Bible calls pride. I'm not advocating marijuana. You know, I'm against it. I hate it. I hate what it does to people's lives. It's wicked. But a proud look is an abomination to God. The Bible says. 
His wrath is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth. We know. Are you a sinner? Yeah. I'm not that bad of a sinner. No, God says, no, you know. You know why the gospel is so pertinent? Because men know they're in trouble with God. Do you know why wicked men can manipulate the fears of men so effectively? Because men fear death. And you know why they fear death? We all have a level of fear of death because it's unknown. Most people fear death because they're terrified of what happens the moment after they die. If they've got enough sense, they'll be terrified until they've been born again. You know what Paul's saying? He's clarifying, saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, and I'm a debtor to every man because every man knows he needs a Savior based on what God has told him. God has clearly shown him. He has shown him in his soul that he is sinful. Number one, there's a God. His eternal power in God has known. And he says, they are without excuse. Now, the question would be, if they're without excuse in being condemned, then don't we owe them the explanation that there's a pardon? You know what God's saying? You're not going to get off by saying, yeah, I did all these wicked things, but I didn't know. Because what we might think is, well, you know, if God wants them saved, he'll get them saved. And if they're innocent, you know, if they didn't know, God says that's not, that's not possible. They know. They know that they are in trouble. Therefore, they need to know that they can be pardoned. Now, I understand if they don't want to know, you can't give water to drink. You can take the horse to water. You can't make him drink. But how many times would we use that as an excuse to not lead them to water? And so then just a few things. Paul says what's clear is the condemnation of man. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Number two, the corruption of men. Men are ungodly and are unrighteous and hold that truth in unrighteousness, either excusing or accusing is what Romans 2 says. And so then he speaks of the conscience of men. He says the things of God, as we read, the invisible things from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even even his eternal power in Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And therefore, that leads us to understand the culpability of men. Men are responsible to their God for what they have done against him. The Bible says those without Christ will be judged according to their works. God says, you relied on what you did, I'm going to judge you by what you did. Yes, you did a right thing here, but you only did it to praise yourself, not to praise me. God's a just God, is he not? However, if I'm in Christ, I'm not judged according to my works. I'm judged according to his. Which would you rather be judged by? The works of Jesus Christ or your own? That's not a hard one. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made. The righteousness of God in him. This morning, as I said at the beginning, the message is really twofold to us. You can read about the wrath of God and the condemnation that is on mankind. In John chapter 3, verses 16 through 21, he says uh, in verse 17, For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He says, This is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because the deeds were evil. John three thirty six tells us, He that believeth on the Son hath life, and he that believeth uh, not the Son of God hath not life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Ephesians 5 talks about the wrath of God against unrighteousness. That's a reality today. You know, men, whether they can articulate it or are willing to articulate it, they live in fear of having to answer for the sins against the Holy God. I believe men can sear their conscience to where they they get beyond that, but the fact of the matter is, it's a reality. Men are culpable to God. Therefore, they are to hear the gospel. You know what? What they do with that is between them and God. But how can a man receive a pardon that he didn't know he was offered? 
That's the gospel. So this morning, as I began to say at the, at the beginning, the desire is twofold. Number one, for us who are saved, remind us we're debtors. We have a message about the Lord Jesus Christ that we ought not be ashamed of because it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. And because men are condemned, they need to hear it. God has entrusted us to offer the message of the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ forgives sinners because men in their conscience know there's a God, know they are sinners and are culpable before God's judgment one day. They'll give an account and they ought to be offered the pardon. Again, I'll conclude. We've preached the gospel. They've got to respond to it. But a man can't. How should they hear without a, a preacher? And how should they preach except they be sent? Now, maybe you're here this morning, and as I'm preaching through and speaking of the gospel, that Christ has died for our sins and the promises of God. May I say this? You may be religious. You may be familiar with the Bible. You're in church on a Sunday morning. None of that makes you righteous. Your sins have got to be put away, and only Jesus Christ has the authority to do that. And if you're here today and you've never turned to Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and give you eternal life, salvation is that simple. He lives and uses preaching like this today to communicate to you that He wants to save you. You're in trouble with the Holy God because you're a sinner. And the consequence for that sin is a place called hell. That's Bible truth. But God is ready and willing and has done everything necessary to pardon you for your sins against Him. You know what? When you put your faith in Christ, the wrath of God is no longer on you. You don't have to worry about God being angry with you and going to judge you and send you to hell. You're forgiven and a child of God. So let me say this. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you say, you know what? I have needed to be reminded of my responsibility. Let's respond to the Lord as we should. If you're here this morning, you say, you know what? I have no assurance that I am ready to meet my Maker. I know I've sinned against Him. And I have a sense in my conscience that I am in trouble with Him. The good news is Christ has done everything to save you from God's wrath and God's judgment, and God is desirous to do so. He loves you, did everything necessary to save you. Here's the good news. Christ is living. Though we see him not, we love him. Though we don't see him, we trust him. And if he's speaking, if the message is speaking to your heart today and reminding you or telling you, you need salvation, it's not this preacher telling you that. That's the Spirit of God telling you that. And you need to believe his word and let him save you today. Mm-hmm.